By the end of today, around 19 Australian women will have learned they have ovarian cancer, many of them quite late in the piece, sadly, which makes treatment very difficult. And ovarian cancer has the poorest survival rate of all female cancers in Australia. So educating people about it is paramount, especially now we know that around a fifth of ovarian cancers have a genetic link. That's a big burden to carry. Karen Livingston has been raising awareness of ovarian cancer and advocating for more research in it for 20 years after losing her mum to the disease. Karen Livingston, welcome. Good morning, Hilary, and good morning to your listeners. Now, sadly, your mother's death in 2001 wasn't the only impact this disease has had on your family, was it? No, actually, my aunt also passed of the disease. So the two sisters actually had um, a gene uh, that actually predisposed them uh, to ovarian cancer. And you discovered you had that gene. What implications did that have for you and, and your family? Well, we were in in the year two thousand. They believed that there was roughly about four percent of cases were um, familial um, cause. So my mum never really uh, believed that it was just a coincidence that both sisters actually had the disease. So she actually, uh, with a loving uh, gift, actually asked for her blood to be put away and stored to be tested in the future to find if there was a genetic reason. Um, And so what happened was uh, they tested it nine months after mum passed away and actually found that there was a gene present. Um, And that gave us answers as to why um, mum and her sister both had it. But it also enabled our family to also be tested um, to see whether we also had uh, the gene. Um, Myself, my sister and also one of my mum's other sisters also all were found to have the BRCA gene. And they sometimes recommend particular surgeries, don't they, when that happens? How did you navigate that path forward? Well, the problem with ovarian cancer is genetically they they believe that it it starts in the fallopian tubes um, and there is research that actually indicates that. Um, We know that if you're a high-risk woman and you're undergoing um, transvaginal ultrasounds on a regular occasion, it actually can't see inside the tubes. Um, and the cancer could actually be very fast growing. We know ovarian cancer is fast growing and it could actually be growing in the tube um, and so it's giving a false positive potentially. So the only thing that women with high risk um, or greater than population risk have is to actually remove the ovaries and the fallopian tubes. How do doctors tell if you do have it? Do they just accidentally find it in the course of other procedures? Well, um, ovarian cancer um, is, look, it has no um, specific symptoms um, and unfortunately women, as you have indicated, are actually diagnosed in advanced stage. Majority are in an advanced stage. Um, So what actually happens is in Australia since 2017, all women who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer actually have access to a free genetic test to see whether they actually are carrying either of the BRCA genes. Um, so that's been a real that's been a real game changer. So women who have been diagnosed since 2017 can actually find out whether their family is at risk. Um, and that's a great initiative that uh, the Australian government is actually um, paying for. So um, it is very difficult uh, to um, 
to tell a person that they also have the gene because I know my aunt never really wanted to know anything about the gene. So it was my mum that was actually driving that. Um, and you actually go um, to your GP. Uh, we don't uh, genetic testing for breast and ovarian cancer, which is uh, basically the same um, disease, is actually uh, discussed at the GP level. So if there are family instances of breast and ovarian cancer in the family, then a GP should know about that. It's really important that they do know that. Yeah. So, Karen, just quickly, you uh, have had to have a think about the implications of having this gene for you. How do you go about having those conversations with your family, given that now there's a risk you could have passed on the gene to your kids? Um, well, for, for me, um, it, it was knowledge was power for me. So um, at the age of 50, I actually had my, my ovaries and my fallopian tubes removed. So that um, basically narrows down my, um, my instance of uh, breast cancer and also narrows um, down uh, any risk of um, primary peritoneal cancer, which can also act like ovarian cancer. Um, for my children, um, uh, there has been a. They're, they're not wanting to know. It's a. It's a little bit interesting. They also lost their father to pancreatic cancer, so um, they don't want to know at this point in time. But when they are ready, we have all the information ready for them to be tested. Um, I have a 27-year-old daughter and a 23-year-old son. We're speaking with Karen Livingston, who uh, is an ovarian cancer advocate with some deep experience with the disease from different perspectives. Let's hear, too, from someone else who knows a lot about the impact the BRCA gene can have. Kevin O'Connor describes cancer as rampaging through his family. Producer Annie Kelsey Sugg went to Kevin's home in Melbourne's east and learnt how Kevin and his family have managed to bring something beautiful from some terrible, terrible losses. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Kevin O'Connor and I are standing in his bright kitchen looking at the framed family photos on the wall. In one, his children, Chris and Kath, when they were two and five, sit on the floor beaming on Chris's first day of school. Yeah, you can tell they're brother and sister. Yeah, right. Kath O'Connor is the author of Inheritance, a novel that's just been published posthumously. She finished the second draft just before she died in 2019 at the age of 45. As Kevin and I moved to sit in his study, he tells me that though Kath was a medical doctor, all her life there'd been a pull towards writing. Books and reading were her first real love and uh, she you know, always said she wanted to be a writer. Words and expression and ideas were just sort of central to, to her life. Shortly before she began writing her novel, Kath was out for a birthday lunch with her family when she had to leave because of pain in her stomach. It was 2015 and this was the first sign of ovarian cancer. When she got the diagnosis about the, um, the cancer was associated with the BRCA gene, um, we then found out we got the, my mother's death certificate and found her cause of death was ovarian cancer. I'd always believed my mother died of, of uh, breast cancer. There's good reason for Kevin's confusion about the cause of his mother's death. He was only six when she died in 1950, and in that era her illness and death were shrouded in silence. It wasn't talked about much at all. She actually died, and myself and my next brother were sent to an aunt in Essendon, and the, the judgement being that we were too small 
too young to be at the funeral, uh, which was obviously a 1950s view of life. My brother was asked to go and go do a bit of shopping and an aunt in the family ran a small cafe and he thought he'd walk around and say hello to her and there was a notice on the door of the shop saying closed due to a bereavement in the family. So he came back to the house where I was with the other aunt and said, oh, you know, Nan's shop's closed and there's a, what, what's, what's a bereavement? And uh, so that aunt, I could actually take you to the room and the position of the chair. So staggeringly clear in my memory of how she said, sitting there and she was saying, oh, I just have to tell you that mum has died. So that's the, that's the first we knew. My mother instilled a sense of order and structure and routine and we, we just kept that going. I always remember that for some reason tea was always at six and that, that was something that we just continued. You know, life just went on. Kevin says there's a real difference in how his daughter's death, decades after the death of his mother, has been met by their friends and family. The day of her funeral, the funeral director Put, put notepads all around this room where we had the celebration and just encouraged people to write uh, notes to her or to, her, to us. Uh, and remarkable statements from people about her as a doctor and, and how they'd, how she had, um, you know, sort of, or in a couple of cases, saved their lives or, or yeah. given them a, a clearer pathway in life. Children have consciously not been left out of celebrating Kath's life and grieving her death. We had a private family um, celebration at her house and the coffin was there and we had a celebrant and our three grandkids, who were probably 15, 13 and 10 at the time, were part of the celebration and one of them actually helped carry the coffin from the back veranda of the house into the car. So wow. to total difference to a circumstance where I didn't even go to the church on the, yeah. On the day of the funeral? That's correct, yes, yeah. yeah. And my, bro my son and his wife have maintained a discussion of Kath. In fact, my daughter-in-law sets a place for Kath for our Christmas dinner. Yeah, so it's another world, which is, which is good. Since Kath's death, her parents, her partner Rachel, writer Inga Simpson and editors at Publishing House of Firm Press have taken the near-complete draft of Kath's novel and carried it through to publication. It stirred up some mixed feelings. The adjusting to her death was difficult in a way because periodically I'd see things as I would in my reading of politics and... And I, my first thought, I'll tell Kath about that. Um, so that, that, and that's been happening now. We're thinking, oh, God, she would have loved to read these reviews because you used to read book reviews all the time herself. And uh, I remember thinking, you know, one of these days I might read a book review of your book in the age, but, uh, which we did at the weekend. Um, yeah, so it's it sort of hit us uh, as a... I don't know, something really concrete, whereas it's all just been a bit sort of vague the last few years, yeah. In fact, a friend of mine phoned and he said, his phrase was a nice one, he said, you, you must be proud but sad. Yeah, so yeah. That's, yeah, that, that's where we're at at the moment. Kath's novel is one little thing in a big life, but it's a powerful legacy. 
Behind Kevin is a large, full bookshelf, and in it I spot his daughter's book, a bold red spine with gold lettering. Well, it's um, remarkable, I suppose. It's rather than a, a gravestone in the, the, the graveyard somewhere, it's, it'll be on a bookshelf, and as you can see, books are part of our life, books are part of her life. So yeah, to have this book and to hand it to some people, close friends, and say, you know, just like you to have this as a memorial. It's, uh, it's been amazing. He says Kath's voice leaps out from inside the pages of her book. You can hear her talking. Yeah, yeah. All the royalties from Kath O'Connor's novel Inheritance are being donated to Women Can, who support the Peak National Gynaecological Cancer Research Group. And you can actually hear more about that novel on RN's book show. Just search for it online or wherever you're finding your Life Matters podcasts. We're speaking today with Karen Livingston, who's an ovarian cancer advocate. Karen, you now work for Women Can too, where those royalties are headed. What sort of research uh, is that money going to fund? Look, it's really important to understand that uh, a woman's um, individual gene expression can actually provide a blueprint for future targeted treatments. Um, ANSCOG, um, in, in a research setting, we're trying to find out what gene is driving the cancer at any one time. Um, we have a world um, a class initiative called OASIS, um, and OASIS, the aim of OASIS is to test new and repurposed drugs um, to target a particular gene. Um, and ANSCOG does that by undertaking small clinical trials um, and the aim is to translate those findings from the lab to the clinic and then to test them in small groups to see if there's any signal that is happening that would lead to a larger, more targeted um, clinical trial. That is the future. And for women right now, the greatest need that they have is for better treatment so that they can live longer. Well, and also better screening because the signs and symptoms that you're told to look out for sound like they could apply to lots of other different things, don't they? Yeah, but the problem with ovarian cancer is there is no screening, there is no vaccine, there is no early detection method. So really women um, have to be aware of their bodies and if they're experiencing it, if you would let me just tell you about some of the symptoms. Sure. At, Appetite loss, feeling full quickly or indigestion, um, abdominal bloating, abdominal and pelvic pain, urinating frequently and urgently and changes in bowel habits such as constipation. Look, some of those, they're, they're very normal um, conditions that women can experience. But women pass it off as being, oh, it's menopause or it's just, mm -hmm. you know, being a woman. And the really important thing is if it lasts, if it's not normal and it lasts longer than three weeks, women need to be seeing their GPs and they actually need to be, um, you know, invest, investigated to ensure that if it is something more sinister, it can actually be detected earlier rather than later. And as you say, women need to be aware of their own bodies and push and push and push if you feel that something is wrong. Karen Livingston, Absolutely. great to have you with us today. Thanks for all your work on this. Thanks for your time, Hilary. It's a pleasure. Karen Livingston is an ovarian cancer advocate. She's had to have the preventative surgery. She's seen the impacts it can have in her family and she really wants us to know how to uh, take better care of ourselves and, and working very hard towards better treatments as well. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.